This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In the pericope of the hospitality of Abraham, there are numerous biblical concepts presented. In today's episode, we attempt to unpack a few of them and explain how they apply to us practically. There's a lot to be said, so I will abstain from saying anything more here. So without further ado, let us hear Scripture. Starting in Genesis 18, verse 1 through 8, it reads, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, so there's definitely quite a bit to unpack here. First things first, it's important not to jump instantly to the Trinity when we read about the three visitors. I, I know, as an Orthodox Christian myself, it's very tempting. But let's just hear the text. I mean, heck, even when you search up patristic commentaries on this chapter, the vast majority of them don't see the Trinity in this passage. So if even the Church Fathers aren't cramming the Trinity here then neither should we. The point is that we need to make sure we don't get distracted and lost in the weeds. Yeah, indeed. Even just from a literary perspective, it's highly unlikely that the authors are adding yet another explanatory element to God, such as this concept of the Trinity. It's clear that the two main titles for God are Yahweh and Elohim. Father Paul has a great chapter on this in his book, The Rise of Scripture, but even from a more uninformed reading, this is obvious. God does receive other qualifying subtitles, if you will, like El Elyon and El Shaddai, but the primary titles are Yahweh and Elohim. These two titles and two subtitles continue to show up throughout the scriptural story, as well as others when they become necessary for the story. 
so they are obviously attributed to God to assist the reader in understanding who God is, normally in a format such as I am God, and then you have the subtitle after that. So it's directly connected. However, this instance of the three persons appearing is not distinctly connected to God like it is in those other passages. Yes, it is God, that is obvious from the text, but the idea of the three persons is not connected in the same way the other attributives are, and it does not reemerge again in Scripture in the same way. It does not say, the three men are Yahweh, or I am El Shaddai, and I am these three men, or I am Yahweh Elohim, these three men. It just says that the Lord appeared to him, Yahweh, and in the next verse, it says he saw the three men, and in verse 3, he addresses them as Adonai, same as chapter 14, so he knows he is speaking with Yahweh. However, this is a new pattern of communication, and I think it's really interesting. According to me, even the common patristic understanding can't be gleaned from this passage alone. You have to wait and hear the text as it develops, because it doesn't want you to get distracted by the personage of these three characters. They are simply three characters that are there to communicate the story that the authors are intending. In this particular section of the story, all the text says in Hebrew is that these are three men. And in Hebrew, that is three anashim. Anashim in Hebrew is not special. It is very unspecial, in fact. This is the word used for almost all common human male persons in the scriptural story. Adam is another of these words, of course, but it only appears in the singular and often carries more literary significance and thus is used with particularity due to the story of Adam in Genesis 1 through 4. So Abraham sees these three men, three very common, simple men, appear before him, and he addresses them as Adonai, which is the same way he refers to Yahweh in the previous passages. These three men don't have any special quality or purpose in the text that we can see that would connect them to the Lord, like messengers or priests, uh, at least not here uh, when they are first introduced. However, Abraham recognizes their association with the scriptural God seemingly supernaturally, and we don't get to know why that is, at least not yet. We have to come and see and allow the story to elaborate on it, which it will. These three men are purposefully left ambiguous at the start because ultimately it doesn't matter who they are. They are totally unimportant aside from their function in the story, which we will come to see as their function in carrying out Elohim's will, God's will, the God of the universe. God can use a king or a peasant if they submit themselves and meditate on his teaching, which is to repeat, to recite his teaching, then they will be holy. It doesn't matter who they are. I will continue to repeat this. The three Anashim cannot be celebrated, having a seat in the minds of men because their identity doesn't matter. Only God's identity stamped or imaged onto them matters, which is to reflect, to image his will. Again, this will result in the three men not having a seat in the minds of men, but having a seat at the Lord's table. These three men, thanks to the hospitality of Abraham, are eating at the Lord's functional, albeit figurative, table. And that is ultimately the only thing that can sustain them. They have a mission to fulfill, which we will soon hear about, but they are in no hurry. They stop to have this meal with Abraham because they know the significance of table fellowship. However, notice this minute detail. Abraham does not eat. It says that he stood under the tree with them as they ate. This additional detail, he stood by them, I believe, is meant to indicate that the they in while they ate is strictly referring to the three men. I can't help but be reminded of two things. The first is that this tree is symbolic of the tree of life which humans were prevented from eating from. These three men who are clearly acting by and are totally consumed by God's will are symbolically allowed to eat from the tree of life as they eat under this tree. This particular tree, of course, is not the tree of life, but it is an image of what could have been 
perhaps. This, of course, is not an end-all, be-all interpretation. I could be totally wrong. It just could be that the slave, Abraham, is feeding the master, Yahweh, and sitting back while the master enjoys themselves. But I think the inclusion of the tree and Abraham seeming to not have partaken in the meal makes it seem like the authors are pointing us in a direction. My second idea is simply that Abraham is not partaking in the meal at the functional Lord's table because he is still not completely and finally transformed or born again, to echo Jesus' wording. The child of promise he is to believe in has yet to be born, and we can safely assume that he still has his doubts, which is certainly mirrored by Sarah's behavior in this chapter. Reading this and having discussions over it is not an opportunity to be creative and come up with fan theories about the three figures. It is an opportunity to learn, and better yet, to push the point even more, if we are to accept this teaching and remove our identity from the equation, then it would be better to say that this is an opportunity not to learn, but to be taught. Exactly, and we have to always remember that this is literature. Nothing in the story is random, but it's either building on what came before or setting up what is to come next. I'd also like to point out that what Abraham is doing is common Bedouin hospitality. Again, at the most basic level, to, to scale this back you know, more down to earth, the saga of Abraham is how a lofty Babylonian city dweller was called by the scriptural deity to renounce the comfort of civilization to become a Bedouin shepherd, a lifestyle that was frowned upon by the surrounding cultures at the time. And I, I'm not kidding either. Nomads were generally considered to be a threat because they were unpredictable. Kind of like how, unfortunately, we as a society often view the homeless with the same skepticism. You wouldn't be able to tell whether they were benign shepherds or violent bandits. The ancient Levantine communities literally record these people as apiru, which literally means dirty. But these overlooked dirty shepherds become the heroes of scripture. But this isn't an immediate switch, as we've seen. Abraham's journey of faith is anything but straightforward, and we're about to see Abraham's blatant lack of trust in the scriptural God as his self-righteousness manifests. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This mention of Sarah is a really good opportunity to bring something up that I just learned about this week, uh, which is that the same root which makes up the Hebrew word Sarah is also the same root that is the basis for the name Israel. Like I said in, in uh, two episodes ago, Sarah means princess, but it also means to persevere, persist, or exert oneself, you know, as a prince would. Thus, Israel would mean God perseveres. This connection with Sarah is really key because in Isaiah 51.3, she is likened to the barren wasteland of Zion, 
which is to be the eschatological home of the scriptural Israel, those who submit to God's exertion of himself. Her lack of faith and generally unfavorable behavior thus far is foreshadowing the behavior of the Israelites. Again, it's like poetry. It, it rhymes. And this is really only experienced if you have a cursory knowledge of the language at play here. And that's why Rowdy and I seek to go in depth with these things in order that we try our hardest to hear and then teach the scriptures as they were originally heard by their original audience. Again, I, it could seem like we're digging too deep, but we need to do this so that these less obvious connections can be understood and then heard, because when that happens, the text just takes on a whole new dimension, and, and, and you can see the brilliance it truly carries, rather than, you know, just being an ancient text among many. The Bible is something special, but you have to actually experience it as it was written in order to fully experience it. And that's true for other things, too. You know, is a Cantonese translation of Shakespeare really Shakespeare? I mean, I, I think not, because that particular style of English is critical for Shakespeare. The Bible is no different. This section with Sarah is pretty self-explanatory at this point. We've touched this ground before with the laughing at the promise, but what is striking is Sarah's denial. This is something we all do. We hear a story about characters doing bad things, and we instantly pontificate and say, I'm not like this, or I don't do that. But scripture is saying, no, no, but you are like that. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, some Bible studies I've been a part of where we've read this, this section, and always, you know, that gets a laugh. No, but you did laugh. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's funny. But it's funny because it's true. It's funny because we're all guilty of that type of behavior. It's, it's just like David's angry reaction towards the evil rich man in Nathan's parable. But the irony is that the evil rich man was David himself. So you can think of this chapter as addressing mainly the sin of self-righteousness, which is the, the crimson sin throughout the entire scriptural epic. This is important so that we don't take pride in descending from Abraham as, say, the Pharisees did, right? Because it's not Abraham who we should take pride in. It's his example of pistis, of aman, of trust, of faith that he demonstrates in the following chapters. Yeah, the authors of Scripture themselves are sowing the seeds of disbelief into the hearers of Scripture. Remember, the most faithful, righteous characters in Scripture hardly get a paragraph. However, the unrighteous, the ones who do evil, get pages and pages and pages of story so that they can be an example to us. And this is exactly what Paul says in his letters. Again, this is a book, and the authors probably assumed that every human person who would hear this story would hear it for a first time, at least at some point, meaning that they assumed a person's first experience of the story would be from the scroll, which is different from how most of us are introduced to these stories, because when it is told directly from the scroll and read aloud, no detail is left out. Many of us grow up, however, with these stories being told around us, and nobody tells them correctly, let alone do they teach them correctly. That being said, if you take into consideration the author's additional detail, which states that the way of women 
was no longer with Sarah, anyone hearing the story would be like Sarah, doubting God's ability to make her produce a child, especially us moderners. Remember, we already know that Sarah was barren, or in modern terms, she was an infertile woman. This statement about her no longer having the way of women is to say that she no longer has her monthly menstrual cycle. And if I am to put it in modern scientific terms, it is to say that she no longer has an ova cell in her uterus which could develop into a zygote. So not only is she infertile, but she no longer has a cell in her body that could produce a child. She is as barren as barren gets, which again further connects her to the barren wasteland of Zion. And I know it's obvious, but I want to push it. Abraham laughed at God last chapter, and in this chapter, Sarah laughs at God. This is an extra-loaded mockery of God because Sarah saw what happened to Abraham after he laughed at God. He circumcised himself, and all the men of his household, including their son Ishmael, he was humiliated, emasculated. She should know better than to laugh at God's statements and his promises, but like us, she is arrogant and thinks she knows better how the world around us works than the maker of the heavens and the earth. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This next section of the chapter is really interesting because the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is inextricably tied to teaching Abraham and his descendants. What I mean by that is that this story serves as a warning to the children of Abraham to not recommit the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah committed. What was that sin? Well, read Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. I'm not going to read it now, but I invite our listeners to look it up. We'll definitely address it in the next episode, though. This is addressed here as the sin of these cities is countered by God's charge to Abraham to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, and justice. Yeah, Blaze, the temptation for one who doesn't hear scripture is to hear this as God letting Abraham in on the plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of Abraham's might and because of how powerful he will become. The natural human tendency is to hear this as God considering Abraham to be an equal. However, this, of course, is wildly incorrect. It must be heard in light of the lesson behind Ishmael's name. It must be heard in light of the previous passages. God is impartial. He will destroy a wicked people regardless of their heritage and connection to God. If a people or a nation is wicked, he will destroy them and replace them, and Israel is no exception. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous from the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, 
If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke of him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So this next section is tricky, because on the one hand, Abraham is displaying a behavior that, on the surface, should seem commendable. He is concerned about the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in contrast to, say, Jonah, right, who wanted God to destroy Nineveh and was disappointed when they repented. Abraham is different, though. He doesn't want Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed if there are truly repentant people there. The issue, though, is that Abraham is not the judge, right? This should be obvious, but it's worth repeating I think the most egregious is that Abraham is questioning God's judgment on these cities as if he isn't aware if there are righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God's judgments are not up for debate in Scripture because he is the shepherd. The only thing that a sheep can do is follow the staff or not follow the staff, right? They have no right to question the leadership of the shepherd because their roles are different. This is what makes scripture antithetical to Hellenism, for example. In Hellenism, everyone has an opinion, and everything can be solved by a debate. In order to defend yourself, you have to make an apology. That word in Greek means from the word, apologos. Interestingly, the Hebrew word that corresponds to this is midbar, which also literally means from the word but it's translated as wilderness because it is in the wilderness or the desert that God's word is heard. But unlike a philosophical apology, God's proposition is just that, a proposition, a command. It's an anti-apology. You don't get to debate. Abraham, like so many of us, is trying to philosophize his way through this. You can't. You must only submit. Yeah, Blaze, you're absolutely correct. Um, I think this is an interesting passage. Abraham starts out by philosophizing, like you said, and, and Yahweh humors him, actually. Please hear the change in tone from question to question on Abraham's behalf. He starts out by saying, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
Now, this is me speaking. The text doesn't say this explicitly, but I believe that this statement paints Abraham poignantly as a true son of Adam, meaning a son of the man who ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has forgotten his place, and he argues with God as an equal, which he is not. Yahweh, however, as we all know, is patient. He just answers the question. He's not interested in a debate or putting Abraham down. He just answers the question. Now, Abraham calms down, and once again I entreat you, please hear the shift in his tone when he says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? Now, this is a pretty major shift from Abraham's previous dialogue. It shows that he remembers who and what he is in the pecking order. But it doesn't make much of a difference, actually, as we heard in Blaze's reading. Abraham just keeps pressing God and pushing his buttons like a child with the ever-irritating, but this, but that, or why, why, why? And God's character likewise is wonderfully on display, never growing angry with Abraham for his questions. He answers. He doesn't deliberate or debate. He just gives Abraham an answer to his questions without any shift in tone. In great contrast to Abraham's insecurity from dialogue to dialogue, this is an important lesson that I think we should remember, not for our own sake to dwell in a lack of understanding, constantly asking God why, and withholding our hand from action, but for us to remain humble when we interact with those who don't have a grasp on Scripture or a grasp on the faith. And to clarify my next point, whenever I say child, I am referring to a literal child as well as a child in the faith. And with both of these, we must remember Christ's word in the following mashal. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. When a child has a great many questions that are difficult for us believers to answer, we cannot grow angry at their lack of faith, as we might call it. Our anger condemns us. You dare be angry at a child for not understanding while you pat yourself on the back for not acting on what you do understand? God does not care if we, like Abraham, have questions or if we challenge his instruction with our own logic, as long as we are sincerely seeking to understand. What he does care about is whether or not those doubts lead us to withholding a helping hand from our neighbor. It was never about understanding. It was about obedience, about listening to the voice of the shepherd whose interest was the entire flock, which is the entire creation. The atheist who mocks God but unknowingly worships him through serving the poor, the widow, and the outcast is right with God. The Christian who praises God and teaches his commandments but afflicts the poor, the widow, and the outcast is condemned by God. Oh, but rowdy, the atheist doesn't confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Enough! You know nothing. It is not up to you whether or not the atheist declares Christ. It is up to God. Hear the words of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. No, this is not the teaching in this chapter of Genesis, but I find myself here at this point because I hear Scripture and how it presents the scriptural God, and I am vexed by the incongruence of its words with the actions of our brothers and sisters in the faith. Because before they were my brothers and sisters in the faith, they were my affliction when I was the faithless child. Thank God that the Scriptures found a place in my heart, and the Ruach of God led me to the place that I am. I don't say this to put a spotlight on me, my story, or my truth. I say this because we have to do better, my dear siblings. We must hear the text and have it control the way we consider the world, our faith, and our neighbor. He who seeks shall find, and he who asks shall have it given to him. Abraham is learning this. He is not being cast out because of his questions or his lack of faith. So why should we condemn our brothers and sisters for the same? It is Abraham's descendants, the ones who outright reject God and afflict their neighbor, who were destroyed. Who cares if they understood Scripture? Who cares if the Pharisees understood Scripture? Who cares if I understand Scripture? No one. Not even God. He cares what I do. Scripture is just the vehicle for the unadulterated teaching that leads to life and correct behavior. Scripture is not my field of study. It is not my specialty. It is not my career. It is not my anything. All of that I count as shit, to echo our father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. I am nothing more than a sheep with the responsibility given to me in Scripture. The same applies to Blaze and all of you. Hear Scripture and do Scripture. 
else you be cast into the flame. Lord, have mercy on us all. Street.